From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today we bring you the story of how, during the Civil War, one of our most celebrated poets, Walt Whitman, cared for both Union and Confederate troops. Also, the story of Audie Murphy, America's most decorated soldier of World War II, whose military service began with a lie. And finally, we'll bring you the story of Rosa Parks, and not just from an historian, but from her own mouth. Let's begin with Hillsdale Professor Kelly Scott Franklin and the story of Walt Whitman's Civil War experience. It was winter in 1862, and Americans were fighting our nation's civil war. In mid-December, the Union suffered a disaster at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The entrenched Confederates cut down wave after wave of Union soldiers, leaving the Northern Army with 13,000 casualties, more than double those of the Southern defenders. From the Union standpoint, things looked pretty bleak for the formerly United States of America. News of the casualties hit the papers right away, and on December 16th, the American writer Walt Whitman learned that his brother George had been wounded at Fredericksburg. With no other information, Whitman set out to find his brother. He searched the hospitals in D.C. with no luck until a friend lent him money and got him a pass to the front, where George, if he were still alive, might be found. Then, in Falmouth, Virginia, Whitman located his brother safe and sound with only a minor wound to his face. But Whitman also saw something else, something he never forgot. Outside a field hospital, Whitman saw a heap of amputated limbs, enough to fill a one-horse cart. Horrified, he wrote in his diary. At the foot of a tree, immediately in front, a heap of feet, legs, arms, and human fragments, cut, bloody, black and blue, swelled and sickening. By 1862, Walt Whitman had already achieved some fame and some notoriety as a poet that celebrated the human body. I am the poet of the body. He had written in his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass. And I am the poet of the soul. The man's body is sacred and the woman's body is sacred. But in that grisly moment outside the field hospital, Whitman got his first real glimpse of the human cost of the Civil War. It wasn't long before he knew what he wanted to do about it. In January of 1863, Whitman returned to Washington, D.C., where he began perhaps the greatest undertaking of his life. While the war raged on, Whitman threw himself into the task of visiting the sick and wounded men, both Northerners and Southerners, who languished in the Civil War hospitals. The Union already had many doctors and nurses, but Whitman intuitively knew that people need more than medical treatment to get well. Companionship, comfort, morale boosting, even a kind word. And as a volunteer, Whitman could provide that to the soldiers. He worked a part-time job in the mornings and spent the afternoons and evenings in the hospitals. He talked with the men, sat with them. He brought a satchel full of little gifts, candy, clothes, fruit, money, tobacco, stamps, and paper for writing letters. When the weather was hot, he brought them ice cream. 
While in the hospitals, Whitman wrote down the names and descriptions of the soldiers in his notebooks, along with anything special they asked for. Henry Benton, Company E, 7th Ohio Volunteer, Ward K, Bed 44. Wants a little jelly and an orange. Wounded last Sunday at Chancellorsville in leg. I saw the bullet and a piece of the bone. Stout hearty Ohio boy. Henry Eberly, Bed 8, Ward K, Company H, 28th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wants a German prayer book. Wounded in the left shoulder pretty bad. Not all of his visits were cheerful. Of a man named Hiram Johnson from the 157th New York Volunteers, Whitman wrote in his notebook, This is the bed of death. Although he supported the Union, Whitman left the politics of the war outside the hospital doors and treated the wounded equally. In his memoir of the Civil War, Whitman later described taking care of a 19-year-old boy from Baltimore whose right leg had been amputated. He writes, as I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him and he was quite alone. Many of these Civil War soldiers died far from family and home. Some of them even died unknown and unidentified. It was the era before dog tags and DNA testing. In March of 1864, Whitman described one of these cases in a letter to his mother. Whitman wrote of the arrival of a train carrying sick and wounded soldiers. Mother, it was a dreadful night, pretty dark, the wind gusty and the rain fell in torrents. One poor boy, he seemed to me quite young, he was quite small, he groaned some as the stretcher bearers were carrying him along, and again as they carried him through the hospital gate. They set down the stretcher and examined him, and the poor boy was dead. The doctor came immediately, but it was all of no use. The worst of it is, too, that he is entirely unknown. There was nothing on his clothes or anyone with him to identify him, and he is altogether unknown. Mother, it is enough to rack one's heart such things. Very likely his folks will never know in the world what has become of him. And many men died unknown in the war. Many were hastily buried or lost altogether in the chaos and aftermath of battle. This meant that families and friends were denied many of the rituals of grief. But Walt Whitman was also at the height of his career as a poet, and during the war he would write poems of grief and mourning that would help him and the nation express those terrible losses. Walt Whitman had worked with words and language for most of his life. Born on Long Island, he supported himself from a very young age, working at a printing shop, in a law office, and as a teacher. But he soon found his way to authorship, writing journalism, conventional poems, and fiction. Then, in 1855, Whitman published his experimental book, Leaves of Grass, which violated all the current norms of poetry and celebrated the full range of human life, from democracy to sexuality, writing in powerful free verse about the body, the soul, nature, and city life, and the labors of working class men and women. But now, Whitman had a war to write about, and at the end of it, he published a book of war poems called Drum Taps. In one of his best poems, Vigil Strange, I kept on the field one night, 
Whitman recreates an imaginary moment of grief and burial for the fallen dead. The poetic speaker describes seeing a young soldier struck down in the heat of battle. Unable to stop for the conflict rages on around them, the narrator charges ahead, but returns that night to keep vigil for a boy he calls both son and comrade. Long there and then in vigil I stood, dimly around me the battlefield spreading, vigil wondrous and vigil sweet there in the fragrant silent night. The speaker stays with the body all night. Till at latest lingering of the night, indeed just as the dawn appeared, my comrade I wrapped in his blanket enveloped well his form, folded the blanket well, tucking it carefully overhead and carefully under feet. And there and then, and bathed by the rising sun, my son in his grave, in his rude dug grave, I deposited. Ending my vigil strange with that, vigil of night and battlefield dim, vigil for boy of responding kisses, never again on earth responding, vigil for comrade swiftly slain, vigil I never forget how as day brightened, I rose from the chill ground and folded my soldier well in his blanket, and buried him where he fell. Like in most of his poems, the soldier remains nameless, which means that he could be anyone, known or unknown, Yankee or rebel, any of the more than 600,000 men who perished in the war. Whitman continued to visit the hospitals on and off throughout the war. He once estimated that he had visited somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 soldiers. He also wrote that, after his time in the hospitals, the pages of his notebooks were actually stained with soldiers' blood. Walt Whitman would have a long and fruitful life and career as a writer, right up to his death in 1892. But he always thought about his hospital years as something central to his life. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course the most profound lesson of my life. Those years of hospital visits represent a tremendous act of service to his fellow Americans during a time of war. While we tend to remember him as one of America's great poets, Walt Whitman's sacrificial charity during the Civil War may be his greatest legacy. But we can also be thankful he was a writer, although he once claimed that the real war will never get in the books. Walt Whitman's diaries, letters, poems, and memoirs constitute a powerful eyewitness account, a moving record of one man's mind and heart during this bloody chapter in the story of American history. And great job on that, Robbie, and thank you to Hillsdale Professor Kelly Franklin for telling us about a great man and a part of his life so few people know. And how moving when that young man, a rebel soldier, said to him, I am a rebel soldier. And he said, I didn't know that, but it made no difference. And we should all be learning from that day to day in life that Whitman was there to just attend to the needs of the fallen. And a special thanks to the great folks at Hillsdale College who support and sponsor this podcast. Hillsdale is a great place to go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. But if you can't get to Hillsdale, or you've already gone to college, Hillsdale will come to you. And they've got free, terrific online courses on everything from economics to the Constitution, great literature, their C.S. Lewis course. It's to die for. 
go to hillsdale.edu. It's so good. And the whole family can learn on their website. Up next, we have the story of Audie Murphy. And boy, it's a good one. Here's Greg to tell us more. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs, which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today which is astonishing considering just 50 plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here in this one person, you have extreme heroism and extreme celebrity 
trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy, more interested in, in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22. I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on the run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of a, of a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date. 
at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. The Army infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning, and he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And the, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the third division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter. And Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44, and they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes 
nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes, and then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes, and he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is, and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those things, both of those tank destroyers, are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across this snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio, and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds, and he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he's starting to pull back, and both of the tanks that are, are with him have been knocked out. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight into the woods and straight to the the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And he, he realizes he's got to stay there as long as he can. And as he's, he's yelling into the radio, yelling coordinates, and he's sort of backing up. And then he realizes that over to his right, the, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he, he's, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank, and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the, the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke. And it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. I think the closest he takes out some German soldiers is he pivots all the way to his left and hits them in the ditch across the road. They're already next to him. And the tank is burning, and he thought that they had no idea where he was. The Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him 
number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. But he said – later he said, I remember being up on there, and the thought I had was this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. <laughs> and there's a there's a story, and I think it's true. That you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for you know artillery support, and across the radio comes the question, "How close are they to your position?" And his response is, "If you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them." And and he's and it gets to the point where the shells coming in and hitting. Are are jarring him and kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they they begin to pull back, and and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing, and he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking, and he walks over to a tree and he leans against a tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think a little a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy and Audie says to him you know don't be afraid to be scared there's going to be times when you're scared to death and then Audie tells this kid i'm always scared when i'm at the front and it's it's the irony is that everybody else in the division says when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style, for people who can't take it and who break under combat, to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's, he's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. There's nothing today, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. And, and Life magazine had heard about him, 
had heard about him coming back to Texas, had heard about the ceremonies that he had been through, and they sent a photographer to do a photo essay in in the little town of of, of Farmersville and Greenville where he lived. And they followed him around, the photographers did, and they staged a lot of pictures too, and this sort of annoyed him. But if you if you get that Life magazine, you open it up, you look through it, and you see, oh, man, you see a photograph of him getting his hair cut with a bunch of farmers looking in at him. You see a picture of him with a girl that the caption says is his girlfriend, but she's not at all. Uh, but it's this cover. You know, if you're a photographer, you got an eye for this sort of thing, and if you're a photo editor, you certainly do. That's the picture for the cover, and it shows him fresh-faced, looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school, and of course he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed you know 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly this guy was 50% disabled you know, according to the US army and and this guy's carrying around already carrying around some some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night but there he is on the cover of life magazine looking like a norman rockwell figure come to life one of hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie murphy on the cover of life magazine and picked up the phone here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw uh, all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And um, Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in, in a gym that a friend of his owned. And kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, but then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back, and that was all about his experiences in the war. And the book was a huge bestseller and kind of got Hollywood's attention again. So he um, ended up making a few movies, mostly westerns, and he didn't care for westerns. He felt like every movie had the same plot as the last movie he did. And one of my favorite quotes, he said that in Westerns, the faces are the same and so is the dialogue, only the horses are changed. And uh, what happened, though, after he was doing these movies and kind of, you know, plugging along, um, To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought and who had died and um, kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in you know, how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the, how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest-earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. And it was the high point of Audie's acting career. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. 
But while this, all this was going on off screen, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle. But during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that um, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said during the 60s, when he was speaking out, he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. But he, he, he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day, and he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45. The picture's in good shape. Don't worry about a thing. I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds, and I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a and he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane and the plane crashed and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington, the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly. It's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave. is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Beck. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, if I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero, Tom Brokaw. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man, humble beginnings, humble in birth, 
and humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington National Cemetery, you must go. You must take the family. As solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks, and no one laughs, and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And if you like what you're hearing on the Our American Stories podcast, know that though the podcast is free and the material you hear is free, uh, it's not free to make. Support the show any way you can with a tax-deductible gift to Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and there's a donate button at the top. And it'll keep our hardworking staff at work keeping these great stories coming to you. And by the way, while you're up there, if you've got a story to tell, we love listeners' stories. You're natural-born storytellers, many of you. Send your stories as well to OurAmericanStories.com. And finally, we bring you the story of the mother of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks. time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks found herself being arrested. Why? Because she refused to give up her seat to a white passenger. Rosa Parks and her husband Raymond were good working-class folks. Raymond worked as a barber and Rosa as a seamstress for a department store. But her arrest all began on just a seemingly normal day. I left work on my way home December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I boarded the bus downtown in Montgomery on Coates Square as the uh, bus uh, proceeded out of town on the third stop. The white passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the face of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as a, on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be uh, two or three men standing. He looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated. He demanded the seats that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest, and I was bond bailed out shortly after the arrest. And the trial was held December 5th, 
on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day. I felt that I was not being treated right, and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. Well, we didn't know uh, just what to expect. In our area, we always try to avoid trouble and be as careful as possible to stay out of trouble and along this line. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I had not taken a seat in the white section as has been reported in many cases. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police, which he did, and when they, they came, they placed me under arrest. I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. What exactly was her crime? Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama in transportation. From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. All of this upheaval led to the Montgomery bus boycott. A boycott that lasted over a year. I feel they kept on walking because I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine, and they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. The buses are empty. Why? Because the Negro people aren't riding them. Because one woman, a seamstress, got fed up with her 40 years of living under Jim Crow. Because one woman said, I have had enough. And suddenly, just like that, 50,000 voices answered, Amen, sister, enough for us, too. It began with the buses in Montgomery, but so much more is at stake now, for this is a part of a struggle going on around the world, for the right to enjoy decent homes like anyone else to work at better jobs for higher pay, and the right to live longer, too. The right to an equal place in the family of man. I think this came about because the ministers were very much interested in it, and we had our meetings in the churches. And being the minority, we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or a belligerent attitude. We believe that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance. We had no quarrel with anyone. We only want to stop riding the buses until we are treated as any other passenger.
Rosa Parks had had enough. The tension had been rising, and it was only a matter of time. Here is Dr. Felicia Bell, the director of the Rosa Parks Museum, discussing the intensity of the segregation and the racially hostile environment. Well, you know, segregation was, was an intense, rigid system of separating blacks and whites. And I mean, down to the cemeteries, down to the pages in the phone books were separated uh, by black people and white people. So everything, every aspect of life was meant to uh, make black folks aware that white people were superior. And uh, even in entrances to buildings, uh, so-called colored entrances were, you even see today on some of the old buildings where the colored entrances were smaller doorways or lower steps separate water fountains, separate uh, facilities for everything. Every aspect of life was meant to demean and to humiliate and to keep black folks suppressed and oppressed. So the effects of segregation on Mr. and Mrs. Parks was one that they witnessed among their friends. They saw how, for instance, she was not the first woman, black woman, to be arrested for sitting in a white section on a bus. So they saw other women in the community being harassed by these bus drivers. They saw you know, the effects of children being harassed, which just before her arrest was the Brown decision. So uh, <clears throat> desegregating public schools, which did not immediately take place. These bus drivers have policing powers. So they have uh, firearms. Sometimes these firearms actually went off on buses uh, and they have policing power to uh, have you arrested or to arrest you. So um, when he asked her to give up her seat, he was actually in the wrong because she was seated in uh, legally. You know, racism is something on the inside. That was a decision Mr. Blake made on his own to make her get out of her seat because she was not seated illegally. And it is his own bigotry, racism, that he is asserting as well. She, there were two or three other folks on the same row that did get out of their seats, uh, African-American passengers. And Mrs. Parks remained seated and quiet. Rosa Parks reacted to the bus driver with an overwhelming sense of calmness. How was it that she was able to do this? Six months or so prior to this moment, uh, Mrs. Parks was at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee uh, 
in the mountains of Tennessee, um, and there was where she trained on uh, civil disobedience and uh, peaceful protest. They held integrated workshops, and this was her first time uh, in a classroom setting with white people, and she quite enjoyed it. Uh, maybe intimidated a little bit at first, but then she really enjoyed the, uh, the sessions, and uh, that's uh, where they trained and learned about how to resist um, segregation and unjust laws uh, peacefully. So she was already, you know, trained in that. So when the driver told her to get out of her seat, she just simply said no. And then uh, he, that was part of the training, to always assert yourself clearly and in simple terms. And then the driver said, if you don't get out of your seat, something to the effect, I'll have you arrested. And, and then she just said, you may do that. Prior to Mrs. Park's arrest, there were several other women who were arrested, including Miss Claudette Colvin, who was a 15-year-old girl who was arrested. The Montgomery Improvement Association met, uh, had a mass meeting at Whole Street Baptist Church, and a uh, young pastor of Dexter Avenue Church uh, who was new in town and had a young family and a wife. He was there as well, and uh, his name was Dr. Martin Luther King, and he um, led the meeting, and he was elected to be the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And so at this mass meeting also, they uh, decided what demands they wanted out of this, what would be a, a boycott, a 382-day boycott. Uh, and so one of those demands was to be treated with respect as passengers. Uh, then also they wanted uh, the city bus, they wanted uh, African American men to be hired as bus drivers on city buses. So that was actually a job for white men. Black men couldn't be bus drivers. So that was one of their demands. And thirdly, they wanted um, first come, first serve seating on buses. The demands of the boycott would not be easily met, and the participants of the boycott would have to stay strong through some very harsh conditions. All four seasons of weather, walking in the rain and the cold and the heat, um, taking carpools and uh, there were all kinds of obstacles in terms of um, uh, taxis being banned or insurance companies not insuring taxis so they couldn't have taxi services so they uh, had they set up a system of pickup locations through the city and you could catch a uh, ride in what were called rolling churches. So uh, these were station wagons with the names of churches on the side of them where the churches sponsored that station wagon. And then you would be picked up and then rather than paying that driver, which that would make it a taxi and illegal, 
you would just uh, put money in the offering of a church on Sunday that was on the side of the vehicle. So then that way, that money paid for the gas and the maintenance and the driver and that. So they, there was strategy involved <clears throat> with the protest and they met frequently. It wasn't just, we're not going to ride the buses. So there was a lot of strategy involved in the process in making it successful. The results of the boycott did not come until the following December. The court ruled that the buses in Montgomery, Alabama be integrated. But then that was appealed. However, the Supreme Court overruled that appeal. So the buses were integrated. However, the bus stops were not. This was just one step closer to justice. Obviously, the church was greatly involved with the Montgomery bus boycott. We really cannot ignore the faith aspect of the entire civil rights movement. You know, really the civil rights movement in general, I think you could say, was largely led by people who were very faith conscious, you know, from Dr. King on down. Uh, so there were many people, uh, clerical members who were uh, leaders in, in, in the uh, movement. And in general, I think uh, the sense of faith and, and uh, the uh, principles of Christianity, I think, is, and was what shaped the nonviolent civil rights movement. There have also been some misconceptions about the situation that happened with Rosa Parks on the bus. One, of, one misconception is that Mrs. Parks was tired when she got off of work and that's why she didn't give up her seat. She was not. Um, I think when we perpetuate that myth, um, what is happening is that we're diminishing this militant act this woman did. She didn't not give up her seat because she was tired. She, she didn't give up her seat because she was resisting segregation. <laughs> she was resisting oppression. Uh, she was resisting the system. And so when we say her feet were tired, it diminishes all, it just erases all of that. Rosa Parks, by remaining in her seat, made a stand against the injustices of segregation. We leave off with a word from Mrs. Parks herself, from a speech she gave in 1995. As I look back on the, those days, it's just like a dream, and the only thing that bothered me was that we waited so long to make this protest and to let it be known wherever we go that all of us should be free and equal and have all opportunities that others should have. And a special thanks to Faith, who took a road trip to the Rosa Parks Museum uh, to get this story done, and that's in Montgomery. We also thank Dr. Felicia Bell, the director of the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery. By the way, if you ever get a chance to visit that museum, 
and so many of the great museums scattered around this country on all matter of things related to American history. By the way, I'm going to leave with a quote from Rosa Parks about that moment of confrontation on that bus in 1955. Quote, I instantly felt God give me the strength to endure whatever would happen next. God's peace flooded my soul, and my fear, it melted away. All people were equal in the eyes of God, and I was going to live like the true person God created me to be. And thanks to so much of the great work in the civil rights movement, that's come to be for, for much of this great country. We've come so far thanks to the heroic efforts of people like Rosa Parks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. <music>